Hi, and welcome to History Makers. I'm Matt Prater. Today we're speaking to author and speaker David Heenan. Now, uh, David's uh, you know just recently spoken at New Hope Brisbane, and uh, I've read his book, uh, The Skeptic's Guide to God. You know, it's a Kurong bestseller, and it's a fascinating book for anyone who is skeptical about God. So if you're skeptical, or you know someone who's skeptical, maybe you should tune in and have a listen to what David's got to share with us today. Uh, firstly, David, welcome to History Makers, and can you tell us a little bit about your upbringing? Your father was a Presbyterian minister. What was it like, and did you travel around a lot? <laughs> Yes, Matt. Uh, well, as a child, we did move around quite a, quite a lot and from country to country. But uh, we, I can remember as, as a kid being brought up in, in Geelong and then my, my father or family moved up to Sydney. And then he, he was compelled to take us then to Scotland of all places and a very northern tip of Scotland, very cold. And that's where I finished my schooling. And that's where I started my working life too. Okay, now one of the things that we have in common is we both have a background in advertising. Uh, I used to uh, sell air, <laughs> I used to sell radio ads, and uh, I remember how excited I was when I get to meet with an advertising agency because they had all the big clients. Now, some of your clients used to have were you know the Australian newspaper, uh, Castrol. Um, IBM, you had some, uh, you know, some quite well-known clients, and uh, I-, I love your um, your background because you- you're very good at photography and the creative side of things, also copywriting, and also the the strategy behind an ad campaign. Tell me, um, how did you get into advertising, and what was it like in that industry? Well, back when I got into it, uh, I was fascinated to read a book called The Hidden Persuaders, and it really gave an insider's view of the advertising industry. And a lot, of, a lot of people aren't really aware that there is this huge industry. Uh, I noticed that uh, just in, in the last year or two, we've had uh, the Gruen Factor on TV. And it's been a very, very popular uh, series because it's given people an inside view of how uh, different products and services are uh, advertised and, and how that advertising comes about, that there's a, there's a whole group of creative people, writers and art directors and so forth that, that are, you know, have got the job, very dynamic job, and uh, of, of putting together uh, all of the advertising campaigns that we see, TV, radio and so forth. You know, I was looking through the list of awards. Uh, you worked for McCann Erickson uh, in uh, Europe, the USA and Australia, won over 25 international and national awards for creative excellence. Uh, you've written and photographed series of books on the Great Barrier Reef. Now, I had a look at some of the photos. Um, I think it was linked to your website or something. I saw, saw them somewhere. That must have been an exciting part of your life, travelling around, suffering you know, f- for the art, working in the Great Barrier Reef. What was all that like? Oh, well, look, it was a tough job, but somebody had to do it. Uh, no, as a, I, I worked, obviously, as a copywriter in, in the advertising industry for quite a few years and then as a creative director. I also have, have written and photographed half a dozen books. And the appeal of doing a book is that uh, you're your own client. When you're working in the advertising industry, you're creating something on behalf of somebody else. And, and the client is, is often uh, saying, well, uh, I want this or I want that. But when you're working on a book, uh, you have basically no parameters except what you choose to do. So that made it a lot of fun. And I did a series of travel books all related to 
tropical North Queensland and the islands of the Great Barrier Reef in particular. And uh, it, it came about because years ago, I, when I was living in Sydney, I wanted to go to the Great Barrier Reef uh, on a holiday and, and I came out of a travel agent clutching half a dozen colour brochures that basically all looked the same. And at that point in time, there was no guide to each of the islands, which absolutely amazed me. And so a bit like renovating your first house, uh, I naively said, well, if nobody's ever done a guide to the Great Barrier Reef Islands, uh, I'll do it. And and that was my first book project, which, uh, yeah, it was just a very enjoyable uh, task, if you like, and yeah, you know, and entailed me travelling around eighteen the eighteen resort islands and and seeing them firsthand and flying over them and walking around them and you know just uh, documenting, if you like, all the attractions of of each of those islands. Now, I've heard you speak recently and seen your presentation. You know, you're very visual. You've got lots of great video clips and uh, wonderful graphic design on the PowerPoint presentation. Uh, and you present a message that a lot of Aussies need to hear, as far as I'm concerned. Um, you know, one of your uh, overwhelming desires is to uh, to present the, the massive evidence supporting the existence of God. Uh, now, this has come out of a, a long life of searching for you, you used to be quite sceptical. Tell, tell us what happened. How, how, did you, how did it all change? Yes, I, look, I was put into a situation where I had uh, financial problems, not on my own making. I, I'd split up with, with my wife and I already suffered burnout too in my career. It's a bit like a brain surgeon saying, well, I don't want to be a brain surgeon anymore. Well, then he's not really qualified to do anything. And so those sorts of, those serious questions or, or circumstances on three fronts all occurred within a pretty short space of time. And I think most people can cope with one major event, if you like, or set of circumstances. But when you've got several serious uh, questions, if you like, over your future and surrounding your life, then uh, quite frankly, it led me into a time of, of questioning and, I might add, fear, great fear of the future, and, and became very dis- despondent about my future. And then I happened to meet somebody, you might say by chance, I don't think it was by chance uh, in, in hindsight, but that led me to go uh, to start asking questions and seeking answers, and, and that took me through the, through the doors of a church for the first time in, in many, many, many years. And to cut a long story short, uh, I had an encounter in God after a pastor prayed for me that, that really was a supernatural event, if you like, and that just turned my life upside down. And life didn't become easy overnight, but I had a whole new perspective on life, and uh, it really set the path then for really the the last 20 years. Now, let's tackle some of the issues that you talk about in uh, The Skeptic's Guide to God. Um, One of them that I just think is uh, very important uh, in uh, scientific terms, of course, is evolution versus creation. Now, um, a lot of people uh, in uh, in Christianity believe in creation, but don't really have um, much evidence they can talk about or, or aren't really trained or don't really know how to explain it to people. Tell us some of the background that you've dug up that, uh, that you use whenever uh, speaking about creation versus evolution. Well, having come, come to the realisation that God is indeed real, uh, after a number of years, the, the evidence uh, for his existence became uh, more and more, more compelling, uh, and, and, and in terms of quantity as well. And I just felt compelled 
to put together a book which, yep, is, is called The Skeptic's Guide to God that really was intended to present an array of evidence as to why people can confidently, first of all, believe in God and trust in God. So I cover areas like archaeology and and uh, uh, many, many, many different areas. But coming back to your question about evolution, of course, the theory uh, of evolution is, is exactly that. And sad to say... Um, Many people out out in 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 the world at large don't realise that it is still simply a theory, not fact, and 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 that's the point that for really almost generations now, uh, evolution has been taught uh, at schools and the textbooks as if, as if it were fact, not theory. But the truth is that evolutionists have never been able to make the facts fit the theory. And it's it's very interesting to note that, that Darwin, uh, for example, when he came up with his theory, realized that the fossil record did not support his own theory, but surmised that uh, later discoveries would fill in all, you know, a whole bunch of gaps. Well, quite frankly, those gaps um, have not been filled in, and the fossil record certainly does not support the theory. And it's very interesting to note that a number of leading evolutionists are honest enough to actually admit this. So there was a, a quote you shared from uh, Professor Sir Fred Hoyle. Do you want to share that one with us? Yes, this is an eminent scientist, and it was. Uh, this is what he said: If you believe the information content in living systems to be to be the result of chance, i.e., the result of of evolution, then you believe that a tornado can go through a junkyard and assemble a jumbo jet. And increasingly, you see, back in Darwin's time, he, for example, saw uh, a cell as, I think he described it as just a, a simple blob, and how, how wrong he was. I mean, today, particularly in the last uh, 20, 30 years, the complexity of, of a single cell has come to the forefront and been recognised, uh, you know, for, for example, the role that DNA plays. And this is, this, this is of particular interest because DNA is found within, the, uh, within virtually every living cell and, and it, it essentially programs life. And what many people don't realise is that DNA is essentially uh, a... A, a, a language. It's made up of four letter, a language with four letters, and it's how those four letters, if you like, are placed that programs uh, our body and its development and functioning. Now, where did that program or language come from? And uh, you know, it's not a it's not a physical thing. It's it's. I, I like to use an analogy. You might have a radio, and it uh, the radio itself is made up of of uh, you know physical bits and pieces and substances. But the programs that are related uh, to it are mental in origin, as is any language. So the giant question which evolutionists have have never been able to answer is where did this language or programming within DNA come from? It had to come from a mental source, and the only candidate is God. <laughs> but it is very interesting too. I mean, um, people tend to take anything that a scientist says as as as, as kind of uh, fact, and and that is just uh, well a pretty unsafe and unwise thing to do, is because a lot of scientists are really in the business of just theorizing and putting ideas out there. But, you know, there are many, many scientists that uh, really 
accept the fact that evolution doesn't stack up. And there, there are some 10,000 scientists in North America that have stated their belief in God. And there has been a, a, a real shift in the scientific community where more and more scientists are realizing that there is a complexity to nature and, and a mathematical precision that could never have been uh, the result or come out of, of chaos uh, and, and chance. And you know, one individual, for example, Dr. John Marcus, uh, once stated this, that evolutionists, for example, have not come up with any specific uh, scenarios that would explain how life, for example, arose from long, uh, non-living chemicals. The stories that are put forward are like fairy tales with some science thrown in to make them sound educated. And so too many people have and are being hoodwinked uh, by ev evolutionists. At the end of the day, uh, most evolutionists are embrace it uh, for philosophical reasons, not scientific reasons. At the end of the day, they, they don't want to be accountable to a creator. And so what alternative have they got to explain why we are here uh, on this planet? Evolution is the only scenario that enables them to discard God and the fact that then, yes, we may be accountable to, to our creator. The other thing I loved hearing you speak about was uh, the evidence of uh, Moses crossing the Red Sea. They, uh, they actually found uh, some, uh, some, some remains in the bottom of the Red Sea. Tell us about that. Well, on the seabed, the, 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 there is a place called Nueba, and there's a very in interesting underwater feature that uh, it's essentially like a natural underwater bridge that, that uh, crosses or is, is underneath from one coast to the other. And what's been found down there in recent decades are the remains of many piles of skeletons of both uh, human beings and horses. And you may remember the, the biblical account where the Israelites were escaping from uh, Egypt. Uh, the Pharaoh then reneged on his deal. He wanted to take them all back into slavery. Uh, the Bible tells us that Moses parted the waters and the Israelites escaped across and then the waters uh, resumed where they were and were told that Pharaoh and his army were drowned. Well, it, isn't it interesting that they've found the remains of many skeletons of, of both horses and human beings, but furthermore, they've found the remains of ancient chariot wheels. And, and there's a, a fascinating aspect to this because they found or have found buried in sediment, uh, crushed by coral, chariot wheels of three different types, uh, one with Four, well, a number with four spokes, some with six spokes, and, and others with eight spokes. And different ancient sources verify that eight-spoke chariot wheels were only ever made within a relatively short time within Egyptian history. And it happens to be the era in which the Exodus took place from Egypt. So th there, there, there are many cases of archaeologists unearthing evidence that do support biblical accounts, accounts that many people like to dismiss as, as myths. Well, I just uh, love looking for evangelistic tools uh, or apologetic tools that you can hand out to people and discussions with people over the years. So I really appreciate you uh, uh, sharing that with us today. Uh, now, one of the things I always like to do before I finish the show is ask, uh, you know, if there are people listening out there, David, that aren't Christians that might think, you know what, I would like to begin a relationship with God, I'd like to become a Christian. Uh, would you tell us uh, how, uh, would you walk through with those listeners how they would become a Christian? One of the problems in our modern age is that there is so much competing for our attention. Uh, 
there's probably no other age in human history where there's just so much to to watch and enjoy. There's there's footy matches, there's cricket, there's there's 24 hour television. There's uh, we're being bombarded like we never have before. And quite frankly, I think it's actually had a, a the unfortunate effect of causing people often to to simply watch and listen as opposed to think and study. Uh, about some of the more important issues. So uh, I would encourage anybody that, that's pondering this question is to start just doing a little bit of homework. And this, this particular book, which, which I put together, is, is one way of doing it. it it's called The Skeptic's Guide to God. And, and it was really intended just to uh, not really answer every possible question, but to, to provide an array of, of facts and information. And uh, it, will, it certainly covers and answers many questions. Um, but also in this day and age, it's so easy to Google certain uh, qu- uh, questions uh, about God and, and information relating to, to archaeology and, and many other aspects of, of ev- evidence. Um, but you've got to start somewhere. And actually a pretty good place to start is, is uh, you know, going to, to, to your local church. And may I suggest that... <laughs> I like to think of churches as a little bit like restaurants. Um, you know, you've got varying churches, uh, as you do varying restaurants. And, and you've got rest, in terms of restaurants, you might have fast food restaurants, and then you've got silver service restaurants up the other end with, with great food, highly nutritious and great service, whereas the other end, uh, it might be kind of tasty but low, no, low nutrition. Well, um, I kind of think that some churches are like that, where some churches, quite frankly, as in, as in the time of Jesus, uh, some church leaders uh, sadly have lost the plot, and so I would suggest that you you visit three or four churches in your local area, and I believe that if you're generally seeking answers, that that you'll find uh, one of those churches that will be providing those answers in the way that they should be provided. Mate, well, I just want to uh, thank you so much for your time today. And if people want to find out more, the website they can go to is www.davidheenan.com. That's D-A-V-I-D-H-E-E-N-A-N.com. And uh, there you'll find more information about David. And, of course, he's available to speak at churches and schools and universities and bar mitzvahs, you know, all over all over the place. He, he would love to, uh, to come and share with you today. He's a good speaker too. Mate, I reckon you're a history maker. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for the opportunity. If you'd like to download this interview, just go to www.historymakersradio.com. And also you can make a donation if you'd like. I'm Matt Prater. Have a great week. History Makers.